0: Friends, Thank you for joining us again for the ASP Stories Weekend Bonus Episode. Join us on Mondays and Thursdays where we interview amazing guests, where they share with us about their adventure sports and the amazing feats that they have done. But ASP Stories is where we get to listen in as authors read their adventure stories to us. So sit back with your hot cup of tea or coffee and kick off your adventure-filled weekend by listening in while we hear more from ASP Stories. How far do you think we have to go? Asked Dan. I had no idea. It seemed we'd only covered a quarter of the return distance, but under these conditions, it was hard to estimate. Finally, we found ourselves on a high shoulder, and the slope dropped on three sides ahead of us. We could see that the drops got steeper as they went down, but we could not see any more detail. My stomach climbed into my throat as I considered our odds. We could not go back up. Going down would most certainly result in an uncontrolled slide, in this terrain, there is probably a 50% chance that the high lip of a cliff waited below us. This does not look good, said Dan. Brian was silent, too silent. Brian, how are you holding up, I asked. He was shivering and stammered that he was not sure. We don't have the gear to survive the night up here, I stated obviously. If we stop going, we'll soon be hypothermic. Brian already looked hypothermic. What do you think, Dan? I don't know, there could be cliffs down there. Yeah, there might be. This is more than a little scary. Can we go back up? asked Dan. Would we be any better off? I replied. No one answered. Brian remained silent. Guys, we're in over our heads. I suggest we pray, and then we head down that slope. You know, whether you're a religious person or not, in circumstances like these, you might find that you are. We gathered in a huddle of three, and we each prayed that God would supernaturally guide our feet down this slope, The wind bit at our faces as we stammered through numb lips. We admitted our foolishness and we asked for God to bail us out. Our prayers ended and it was time. We shook from fear and from cold. Dan headed down the slope in front. I was impressed with his bravery. We used the edges of our lightweight hiking boots to maximize our traction. It was so steep that as we worked our way down sideways, we could rest one hand on the slope on the hillside, "'above us without stooping. "'We kicked through the snow, "'hoping to find rock or dirt beneath. "'Step after cautious step took us painstakingly lower. "'We gained confidence. "'The movement and the prayer renewed our hope. "'I looked behind me toward Brian. "'He was hanging in there, "'but he really looked cold and a little off balance. "'We made reasonable progress. "'I continued to whisper prayers for all of us. "'We each lost our footing from time to time, "'but we were able to kick in our heels.' And to arrest our slides. I could feel God's guiding hand upon us. We should not be here. These peaks that had so often testified of God to me now seemed to be a dark enemy. Still, I rested in the fact that our Creator knew these ledges and that He would guide us. Is not life often thus? Our temporal nature blinds our view of the future. We work our way forward into the unknown and we struggle to see ahead. A confidence grew. That it was not our destiny for any of us to die there that night. There were plans for our futures. The slope moderated after several hundred feet, and we were near the level of one of the lakes. Once we reached the water, we could be assured of avoiding drop offs. The lake was evidence of a level grade, and any cliffs would be announced by the sound of a waterfall. This was good news, but we were far from safe. The temperatures continued to drop. It was still very dark, and we had several miles to cover before we could find warmth, food, or shelter. Quite some time passed as we worked our way forward. There was a narrow trail that ran along the edge of the lakes. It was hard to follow in the snow, but it was reassuring. Exhaustion started taking taking its toll. We wanted to stop. Our legs ached. Ah, to sit down and rest for a while, but rest would bring death at this point. It was just too cold. We might not get up again if we sat in the snow. We dragged on and on. We passed the first lake, and were hiking along the second. Guys, I'm done, Brian announced. I need to just sit down here. I can't go on. Brian did not know the danger of hypothermia. He was so exhausted that his reasoning ability was impeded. He was already hypothermic and ready to collapse into the snow. I'll just stay here, he stammered. Dan and I knew of people who had died of exposure in these peaks. Some do every year. Brian had turned out to be one of the tougher guys that I knew, but cold and fatigue had rattled his brain. Dan walked back to Brian. You can't do that, man. You'll die here, he insisted. I put in my two cents worth as well, and Brian, now clearly staggering, shook his head and continued down the trail. As it turned out, we were closer to the campsite than we knew. In less than an hour, we had located our friends and a roaring campfire. Many people are found frozen to death quite near the shelter. That's the paradox of such tragedies. It's so easy to lose one's sense of distance and direction in the dark and in the snow. How many lose hope in life just before they would have prevailed against adverse circumstances? Disappointment and disillusionment can blind us so easily from seeing how close we really are to overcoming. Brian was in no way weak. He proved his strength and tenacity. He had been confused by hypothermia and exhaustion. He had briefly lost his focus. We received mixed greetings when we finally approached the fire. There were five others here. They had tents and cars for shelter and a roaring fire. Still, some were clearly miserable. We were scolded for being foolish. It was nearly midnight, and they had become quite concerned. Everyone, except a lady named Michelle, climbed into the cars to sleep. They had tents, but they thought the cars would be warmer. They were clearly disgusted with us. Michelle was different. She showed true concern. She was skilled in the out-of-doors and seemed to know our plight. She told us that they did not know whether to call for a search and rescue team or what to do. In those conditions, a search team would have been just as lost. Michelle listened to the account of her mishaps as she helped us warm some food. We literally could not take off our wet clothing due to the quarter inch of ice that had it secured in place. We propped our legs near the campfire and waited for the ice to melt so we could untie our boot laces. Michelle massaged Brian's shoulders and back while helping him out of his soaked jacket. Michelle was golden. Soon enough, we had warm food in our stomachs and the fire had driven away the threat of hypothermia. We began to laugh at our own foolishness. We also laughed with the realization that we had survived an ordeal that could have easily cost us our lives. We thanked God for his protection. Michelle, Brian, Dan, and I climbed into the abandoned tents. I did not have enough dry clothing to be completely comfortable, but the warmth of my sleeping bag soon did the trick. I slept soundly and warm until one of the cars started. It was barely even daybreak. I unzipped the tent to see the car with frost coating the insides of the windows from the breath of its occupants. I climbed out of my tent and I went to the car. Hey, let's get this fire going again, I said, and make some breakfast. We have a beautiful day ahead of us, I encouraged. No way, came the group reply from the car cramped cold and grumpy those in the car had had enough as soon as the defrosters cleared the glass they put the car in gear and headed for denver no one even as much as stuck a hand out of a window i had mixed feelings the camp out had been my idea and i had chosen the location i had talked most of these people into coming as well i was sad they had not enjoyed the event Still, the other side of me found it hilarious that they shivered in the car all night when they could have stretched out in a warm tent and slept soundly. It was also interesting to me that they would opt to drive back to the city rather than to enjoy a high mountain morning with freshly fallen snow. It was a spectacular day. Michelle, Brian, Dan, and I did enjoy a nice peaceful breakfast. We celebrated the morning. I don't know when I had felt so alive. The experiences of the night before had taught me so much about life and about myself. We had survived quite challenging circumstances, and we were the better for it. I had learned how critical it can be to press on in the face of adversity. I had learned the value of friends who encourage one another. I had learned the difference between criticizing one's poor judgment and helping this one out of trying situations. I had learned that the Creator's still small voice— could be heard in the midst of the storm. I also began to sense another important lesson. Some of us opted for tents in the storm that night. Others opted for the familiarity of a car. Those of us who chose the tents chose to work with nature. Those who sought the shelter of the familiar hid from nature. They did not want to learn from nature. They did not want to flow with nature, but rather fought against it. Ultimately, they ran from nature to return to the city. I was later criticized by these same people for suggesting that we camp so late in the season in such a cold place. I found it interesting that those of us who stayed in the tents slept well and did not feel the need to run from nature at first light. We had a wonderful experience. We all went through a cold night in the mountains. Some of us almost gave our lives to that storm, and we were positively shaped by the experience. Those who huddled in the cars did not grow that night. Those who chose nature over comfort found not only comfort, but also had a wonderful time. Those who chose comfort over nature did not find comfort, and they had a miserable time. In life, we can choose to work with our circumstances and to learn from them, or we can choose to hide from our circumstances. On this outing, those of us who endured the most enjoyed the most. It is true that those who seek to escape from life's storms usually don't find escape, But, by accepting the storms as a part of the package and working with the storms, a more abundant life is found, a life well lived. It's worth enduring the storms. After breakfast, Dan had to return to town for some prior commitment. Brian, Michelle, and I spent the day traveling through the mountains, viewing the bright yellow aspen leaves of fall. The sun broke through the clouds mid-morning and added highlights to the scenery. Steam rose from the asphalt as we toured. I wondered if those who drove to the city were having as much fun. We laughed and drank in the medley of colors. Yellow aspen, blue sky, green pines, blue spruce, and white snow.
1: Spectacular. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by 180TAC.com. 180 TAC manufactures premier backpacking and emergency products. Whether you need a backpacking stove for your week-long trek on the trail or an emergency stove for your bug-out bag, we have the tools you need. Visit www180 tackcom Hey, we have a new
0: sponsor on the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm excited about this one. I've been wondering for a long time when active technology was going to be incorporated with clothing to do cool things. And here's an example. This is Action Heat. Action Heat is a line of clothing that actually weaves heating elements into the clothes. It works similarly to how a car seat is heated, except that it runs off a little rechargeable battery pack. And This battery pack can last up to 12 hours on a charge. It can also recharge your cell phone or other devices, so it's multi-purpose. And they have all kinds of options here. Hats, they have jackets, they have shirts... They have socks. They have gloves. They even have undergarments like long johns. Man, they will keep you cozy from head to toe. I can see using this motorcycle riding, riding up the lift at the ski area, watching a ball game. Anytime I need that little extra boost of heat, this stuff really fits the bill. So Action Heat, you can get it at Action Dash heatcom forward slash adventure. Please do use the forward slash adventure for two reasons. For one, that's how they know that you heard about them from us. For two, it saves you 15%. So how cool is that? Your holiday shopping is done. All you have to do is go to action-heat.com forward slash adventure. Spring is snowy. Fall is snowy. Winter is snow. We do not see rain in the winter. Rather, we find we're either squinting from the brilliant sun bouncing off the snow or we're gazing peacefully at the snow dancing toward the earth. Winter. Winter is amazing at 8240. These are the Orion nights at our house. I have dubbed this season thus because of the view of the constellation Orion from our eastern facing deck. During the icy months around bedtime, the great hunter is wonderfully framed between two huge ponderosas. He faces stage left with his bow aimed toward Ursa Major, the bear. Beetlejuice glares from above his belt and Orion Nebula haunts his great sword. It's a paradox, I guess, that Orion hunts the bear during the terrestrial bear's time of long sleep. His bow is ever drawn toward the bear that does not hibernate, and he reminds us that the cold months are not forever. By the time our neighbors, the bears, clear the sleep from their eyes, Orion will have moved on to other skies. I'm thankful for Orion's vigilance. When I think of the hunter, I think of winter, but when the wind bites at my nose and fingertips, I appreciate Orion's reminder that the warm season of the wakeful bears will return. The clear winter skies at 8240 offer glorious rewards to the one who's willing to brave the cold night wind. When the clouds are at bay, as they usually are, striking constellations and star clusters pierce the night. We can even see Andromeda, the closest galaxy to our Milky Way, without the aid of magnifying lenses. Like our home galaxy, Andromeda is spiral-shaped with a round bulge of densely packed stars in its center. To see Andromeda, I walk out our rarely used front door and I look up and a little to the west. Cassiopeia's deeper V directs the eye to this wonder. It occupies a chunk of the sky about the same area as that claimed by the full moon. To the naked eye, Andromeda looks like a fuzzy glow, almost as if a thin, high cloud was refracting the starlight. With binoculars, its disc shape and center bulge become apparent. I'm awestruck. Why the fascination with Andromeda? Almost everything in the sky that humans see with the naked eye is in our Milky Way galaxy. Andromeda is one of the few items that I can pick out of the night sky that reveals itself from far, far beyond the limits of our home spiral. How far? 2.2 million light years away. So what, you might ask? So light travels around the Earth about seven times a second. That's fast. Jump on a photon headed for Andromeda, and the next stop is 2.2 million years from your departure. That is very far indeed. When I see the Andromeda's fuzzy glow... I'm seeing light that was radiated by a trillion stars 2.2 million years ago. Andromeda may not even exist anymore. A trillion stars. I can't think that big. 2.2 million years. I can't think that long. I feel tiny, as I should. Keep in mind that in deep space terms, Andromeda is very, very close. I feel even smaller. How does one wrap around these giant numbers? Here's one comparison. Let's say that you have a budget of $100,000 per year for all of your living expenses. If you had $2.2 million instead of 2.2 million light years, and if you did not invest that money, $2.2 bucks would take care of you for 22 years. $100,000 per year for 22 years. We can sort of imagine that, but how much bigger is a billion a billion bucks has you covered for 10,000 years at $100,000 per year. What? What? Now that's hard to fathom. A billion is really big. But what about the trillion stars in Andromeda? 10 million years. That's right. If you had a dollar for every star in the Andromeda galaxy, you could spend 100000 bucks a year for 10 million years before you ran out of money. That's too hard to wrap around. What if you spent a million dollars per year? Remember, that's 10 years worth of living expenses each year. But if you spent 10 times more than needed, you would still have enough money to last 1 million years. Why all the numbers? Well, that's a lot of stars a long way away, and those photons from those stars tickle my retina enough for my brain to get the signal. I can see that. I can see two-million-year-old light. We can see the home of a trillion stars. Wow! That's all I can say. For a moment, as I gaze at Andromeda, I realize how short life is and how small the pressures of the office really are. I understand for a moment that neither how much I acquire nor the status I attain has any lasting value. The love of my family and the faith in my heart are forever. And forever even makes Andromeda seem close And small. The winter months are a good time for such contemplation. Not that winter at 8240 is dull, it's simply strikingly wonderful with many proclamations from nature. But winter is a very active season for us. The snow comes often and often comes deep. Merely keeping a path to our cars and a clear driveway to the road is a challenging endeavor. Then there is the added challenge of keeping our wood stove stoked. The woodpile is a 100 yards from our house through snow that is often more than a few feet deep. But not all of winter is work. Our toboggans provide regular thrills and a brisk cross-country ski outing from our doorstep adds to the season's high points. Yes, the common element in all these activities is the snow. The snow visits us in so many ways. In the early fall and late spring, the snow comes thick like peanut butter. It glues itself to the deck and consolidates into ice overnight. A shovel full of this paste is enough to make a lumbar scream. But for most of the winter, the snow comes as light individual crystals. This flower sifter snow collects into the champagne powder for which Colorado is so famous. Some snows are so light that one can walk through a foot or so of it without really feeling any encumbrance of stride. There are many varieties of snow, But the most impressive aspect of it, at 8240, is the snow's sheer volume. Our first winter at altitude was impressive. El Nino flexed his muscles, sending us plenty moisture-burdened fronts. I keep a tally of the snowfall. I like to know just how much snow I actually had to shovel, push, or plow each season. I try not to be prideful about it, but for me, this serves a similar purpose as the distance and time logs that many runners keep. I need to know the forces I fought. It feeds my ego in some 13-year-old sort of way. Mid-October started the season with a flower sifter snow that lasted for 36 hours. When the sun finally burst through the clouds, we had an inch of fluff for each of these hours. Three feet of snow transformed our world. The landscape looked foreign. The cars were mere bumps of white in the driveway. The retaining wall vanished. A large juniper bush and a north-facing slope did not even make a small mogul. I soon forgot that it was there, for we did not see its gin-flavored branches again until May. I had to push forcefully on our storm door to clear a gap that I could just squeeze through. Most of the day was spent clearing narrow cuts in the snow to provide us access to the dogs and to the cars. My high Bronco 2 with aggressive snow tires only made it about 5 feet before snow packed under the front of the frame and it began to lift the tires. It was like a turtle on its back. A kind neighbor with an aged Ford tractor helped to emancipate the drive. It took hours. Finally, the paths were cleared, so I grabbed my alpine skis and I clawed my way to the highest point of our property. The first pass down our slope was slow. There was too much snow to gain momentum and filmed my second pass. Our large white dogs, Yeti and Tarmigan, wanted to check out the excitement. The snow was so deep that they had to stay in the ski trail to make any headway. I finally had my momentum, but the result was a pile of poles, skis, Curtis, and excited dogs. We laughed as I struggled out from under this moving mountain of white. Yeti and Tarmigan joyfully cleared the snow off my face, leaving me dripping with dog slobber. By June of the following year, I had measured over 17 feet of snowfall. Had it not consolidated, our windows would have been 12 feet below the surface. We would have been living in a submarine under a frozen sea. The snow did consolidate, however, but not quite enough. Several times that winter, I was forced to shovel hard-packed snow out of our dog's yard to keep them from stepping over their five-foot fence. Winter at 8240 is the fulfillment of every child's dreams. That winter, I built a snow cave in the yard that stood for several months. My niece and nephew, ages 4 and 6, and I, spent the night in the cave. We skied, tobogganed, tunneled, and tumbled. I considered teaching the dogs to pull the toboggan full of firewood up to the deck, but that dream would have to wait. Sure, this kind of winter requires a lot of work. Living at altitude is not only a choice of location, it is a choice of lifestyle. Still, the winter was grand, and as for the 17 feet, they were 17 feet of dream-realizing excitement.
1: Thanks for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast and this bonus episode of 8240, One Family's Life Above the Clouds. We hope you guys enjoyed it and come back for another chapter. Please be sure to leave us a comment on our website at adventuresportspodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Don't forget, you can also help to keep the show going by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. A lot of work goes into this show. We can certainly use your help to keep the great interviews coming until the next time. Get out and have some fun.